Section 10 of The Fifth Queen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Fifth Queen by Ford Maddox Ford. Part Two, Chapter Three. The young Poins, in his scarlet and black, drew his sister into a corner of the hall in which the gentry of the lords that were there had already dined. It was a vast place used as a rule for hearing suitors to the Lord Privy Seal, and for the audit dinners of his tenantry in London. On its whitened walls there were trophies of arms, and between the wall and the platform at the end of the hall was a small space convenient for private talk. The rest of the people there were playing round games for kissing forfeits, or clustered round a magician who had brought a large ape to tell fortunes by the Sortis Virgiliane. It fumbled about in the pages of a black-letter Aeneid, and scratched its side voluptuously. Taking its own time it looked at the pages attentively, with a mournful parody of an aged sage, and set its finger upon a line that the fates directed. "'Here's a great ado about thee,' Poyne said, laughing at his sister. "'Thy name is up in this town of London.' He had come in the bodyguard of the Queen and had made time to slip round to old Badge's low house behind the wall in order to beg from his grandfather ten crowns to pay for a cloak he had lost at cards. "'Such a cackle amongst these Lutherans!' he mocked at Margot. "'Heard you no hootings as your lady rode here behind us of the guard?' "'I heard none, nor she deserveth none,' Margot answered, "'for I love her most well.' "'Aye, she hath done a rape on thee,' he laughed. Ay, our good uncle hath printed a very secret libel upon her." He began to whisper. Let it not be known, or a sudden vengeance might fall upon their house. It was no small matter to print unlicensed broadsides. But their moody uncle was out of all fear of consequences, so mad with rage. He would have broken my back, because I tore thee from this tender keeping. Sure it was never so tender, Margot said. When was there a day that he did not beat me? but he would have married her to his apprentice, a young fellow with a golden tongue, that preached every night to a secret congregation in a cripplegate cellar. "'Why, an thou observest my maxims,' the boy said sententiously, "'I will have thee a great lady. But uncle hath printed this libel, and tongues are at work in Austin Friars.' It was said that this was a new papist plot. Margot was but the first that they should carry off. The Duke and Bishop Gardiner were reported to have signed papers for abducting all the Lutheran virgins in London. They were to be led from the paths of virtue into Catholic lewdness, and all their boys were to be abducted and sent into monasteries across the seas. "'Thus the race of Lutherans should die out,' he laughed. "'Why, they are hiding their maidens in pigeon-houses in Holborn. A boy called Hugh hath gone out and never come home and it is said that masked men in black-stuff gowns were seen to put him into a sack in Moorfields. "'Well, here be great marvels,' Margot laughed. He shook his red sides, and his blue eyes grew malicious and teasing. "'Such a strumpet is thy lady,' he uttered, "'a papist Howard that is known to have been loved by twenty men in Lincoln.' Margot passed from laughter into hot anger. "'It is a marvel God strikes not their tongues with palsy that said that.' she said swiftly. "'Why do you not kill some of them if you be a man?' "'Why, be calmed,' he said. "'You have heard such tales before now. It is no more than saying that a woman goes not to their churches to pray.' A young Martin Putris, half-page, half-familiar to the Earl of Surrey, came towards them, calling, "'Halpoins!' 
He had black down upon his chin and a roving eye. He wore a purple coat like a tabard, and a cap with his master's arms upon a jewelled brooch. "'They say there's a howard wench come to court,' he cried from a distance, "'and thy sister in her service.' "'We talk of her,' Poins answered. "'Here is my sister.' The young pewteress kissed the girl upon the cheek. "'Pray you, sweetheart, unfold,' he said. "'You are a pretty piece, and have a good brother that's my friend.' He asked all of a breath whether this lady had yet had the smallpox, whether her hair were her own, how tall she stood without high heels to her shoon, whether her breath were sweet or her language unpleasing in the Lincolnshire jargon, whether the king had sent her many presents. Margaret Poins was a very large, fair, and credulous creature, rising twenty. Florid and slow-speaking, she had impulses of daring that covered her broad face with immense blushes. She was dressed in grey linsey woolsey and wore a black hood after the manner of the stricter Protestants, but she had round her neck a gilt medallion on a gold chain that Catherine Howard had given her already. She was, it was true, the daughter of a gentleman courtier, but he had been knocked on the head by rebels near Exeter just before her birth, and her mother had died soon after. She had been treated with gloomy austerity by her uncle and with sinister kindness by her grandfather, whom she dreaded. So that, coming from her Bedfordshire aunt, who had a hard cane, to this palace, where she had seen fine dresses, and had already been kissed by two lords in the corridors, she was ready to aver that the Lady Catherine had a breath as sweet as the kine, a white skin which the smallpox had left unscarred, hair that reached to her ankles, and a learning and a wit unimaginable. Her own fortune was made, she believed, in serving her. Both the magister and her brother had sworn it, and living in an age of marvels, dragons, portents from the heavens, and the romances of knight-errantry, she was ready to believe it. It was true that the lady's room had proved a cell more bare and darker than her own at home, but Catherine's bright and careless laughter, her fair and radiant height, and her ready kisses and pleasant words, made the girl say with hot loyalty, "'She is more fair than any in the land, and indeed she is the apple of the king's eye.' Her voice was gruff with emotion but suddenly becoming very aware that she was talking to a strange young gentleman who might scoff, she seemed to choke and put her hand over her mouth. Brocades for dresses, perfumes, gloves, oranges, and even another netted purse of green silk holding gold had continued to be brought to their chamber ever since the privy seal had signed the warrant, and it being about the new year, these ordinary veils and perquisites of a maid of honour made a show. Margot believed very sincerely that these things came directly from the king's hands, since they were formally announced as coming of his highness's great bounty. She reported to young Putris, "'And even now she is with the Lord Privy Seal, who brought her to court.' "'He will go poaching among our Howards now,' Putris said. He stood considering with an air of gloom that the Norfolk servants imitated from their master along with such sayings as that the times were very evil, and that no true man's neck was safe on his shoulders. "'Pray, you sweet lips, tell no one this for a day until I have told my master. It may get me some crowns.' He pinched her chin between his thumb and forefinger. "'I will be your sweetheart, pretty.' "'Nay, I am provided with a good one,' Margot said seriously. "'You cannot have too many in this place. Take me for when the other's in jail.' and another for when I am hung, as all good men are like to be." He turned away lightly and loosened one of his jewelled garters, so that his stockings should hang in slovenly folds, to prove that he was a man and despised niceness in his dress. "'I would that you not be too cheap to these gentry,' 
her brother said, with his eyes on Putris. "'I did not,' she answered. "'If a gentleman will kiss one, it is uncourtly to turn away the other cheek.' "'There is a way of not lending the lip,' he lectured her. "'I shall school you. A kiss here, a kiss there, I grant you. But consider that you be a gentleman's child, and ask who a man is.' "'He was well enough favoured," she remonstrated. "'In these changing days many upstarts are come about the court.' He went on with his lesson. Such were not here in the old days. Crummock hath wrought this. Seek advancement, pleasure your mistress, who can advance you. Smile upon the magister, who, being advanced, can advance you. Speak courteous and fair words to any great lords that shall observe you. So we can rise in the world. I will observe thy words, she said submissively, for he seemed to her great and learned. But I like not that thou callest me you. "'Why, these be grave matters,' he replied, "'and you is graver than thou. "'But I love thee well. "'I will take thee a walk if the sun shine to-morrow.' He tightened his belt and took his pike from the corner. "'As for your lady, those that made these lies are losels. "'I could slay a score of them if they pressed upon you too.' "'I would not be so spoken of,' Margot answered. "'Then you must never rise in the world, as I am minded you shall,' he retorted. For, you being in a high place, eyes will be upon you." Nevertheless Catherine Howard heard no evil words shouted after her that day. Pikemen and servitors of Cromwell were too thick upon all the road to the tower where the courtiers took barge again. Cromwell made very good order that no insults should reach the ears of such of the papist nobles as came to his feast. They would make use with the king of evil words if any such were shouted. Thus the more dangerous and the most foul-mouthed of that neighbourhood, when the court went by, found hands pressed over their mouths, or scarves suddenly tightened round their throats by stalwart men that squeezed behind them in the narrow ways, so that not many more than twenty heads on both sides were broken that day, and Margot Poins kept her mouth closed tight with a sort of rustic caution, a shyness of her mistress, and a desire to spare her any pain. Thus it was not until long after that Catherine heard of these rumours. Catherine was in high good spirits. She had no great reason, for Veridus had threatened her, the Queen had rolled her large eyes round when Catherine had made her curtsy, but no words intelligible to a Christian had come from the thick lips, and no lord or lady had noticed her with a word, except that, late in the afternoon, her cousin Surrey, a young man with a sleepily insolent air and front teeth that resembled a rabbit's, had suddenly planted himself in front of her as she sat on a stool against the hangings. He had begun to ask her where she was housed, when another young man caught him by the shoulder and pulled him away, before he could do more than bid her sit there till he came again. She had been in no mood to do that for her cousin Surrey. Besides, she would not be seen to speak much with a papist henchman in that house. He could seek her if he wanted her company. So she went into another part of the hall, where they were all strangers. Except for the mere prudence of pretending to obey Veridus until it should be safe to defy him and his master, she troubled little about what was going to happen to her. It was enough that she was away from the home where she had pined and been lonely. She sat on her stool, watched the many figures that passed her, marked fashions of embroidery, and thought that such speeches as she chanced to hear were ill-turned. Her sister-maids of honour turned their backs upon her. Only the dark girl, Cicely Elliot, who had jibed at her a week ago, helped her to pin her sleeve that had been torn by a sword-hilt of some man who had turned suddenly in a crowd. But Catherine had learnt, as well as the magister, that when one is poor one must accept what the gods send. 
Besides, she knew that in the Lady Mary's household she was certain to be avoided, for she was regarded still as a spy of old Crummock's. That, most likely, would end some day, and she had no love for women's chatter. She sat late at night correcting the embroidery of some true-love knots that Margot had been making for her. A huckster had been there selling ribbons from France, and showing a doll dressed as the ladies of the French King's court were dressing that new year. He had been talking of a monster that had been born to a pigsty on Cornhill, and lamenting that travel was become a grievous costly thing since the monasteries, with their free hostel, had been done away with. The monster had been much pondered in the city. Certainly it portended wars or strange public happenings, since it had the face of a child, greyhound's ears, a sow's forelegs, and a dragon's tail. But the huckster had gone to another room, and Margot was getting her supper with the Lady Mary's serving-maids. "'Save us!' Catherine said to herself over her embroidery frame. "'Here be more drunkards. If I were a queen I would make a law that any man should be burnt on the tongue that was drunk more than seven times in the week.' But she was already on her feet, making for the door, her frame dropped to the ground. There had been a murmur of voices through the thick oak, and then shouts and obdurations. Thomas Culpepper stood in the doorway, his sword drawn, his left hand clutching the throat of the serving-man who was guarding her room. "'God help us!' Catherine said angrily. "'Will you ruin me?' "'Cut throats!' he muttered. "'Aye, I can cut a throat with any man in Christendom, or out.' He shook the man backwards and forwards to support himself. "'Cat, this offal would have kept me from thee.' Catherine said, "'Hush, it is very late.' At the sound of her voice his face began to smile. "'Oh, Cat!' he stuttered jovially. "'What law should keep me from thee? Thou art better than my wife. Heathen to keep man and wife apart, I say, I—' "'Be still. It is very late. You will shame me,' she answered. "'Why, I would not have thee shamed, Cat, of the world,' he said. He shook the man again, and threw him good-humouredly against the wall. "'Bide thou there till I come out.' he muttered, and sought to replace his sword in the scabbard. He missed the hole and scratched his left wrist with the point. "'Well, tis good to let blood at times,' he laughed. He wiped his hand upon his breeches. "'God help thee, thou art very drunk,' Catherine laughed at him. "'Let me put up thy sword.' "'Nay, no woman's hand shall touch this blade. It was my father's.' An old knight with a fat belly, a clipped grey beard, and roguish, tranquil eyes was ambling along the gallery, swinging a small pair of chevral gloves. Culpepper made a jovial lunge at the old man's chest, and suddenly the sword was whistling through the shadows. The old fellow planted himself on his sturdy legs. He laughed pleasantly at the pair of them. "'An you had not been very drunk, I could never have done that,' he said to Culpepper, "'for I am past of sixty, God help me.' "'God help thee for a gay old cock,' Culpepper said. "'You could not have done it without these gloves in your fist.' "'See you, but the gloves are not cut,' the knight answered. He held them flat in his fat hands. "'I learnt that twist forty years ago.' "'Well, get you to the wench the gloves are for,' Culpepper retorted. "'I am not long together of this pleasant mind.' He went into Catherine's room, and propped himself against the door-post. The old man winked at Catherine. "'Bid that gallant not draw his sword in these galleries,' he said. "'There is a penalty of losing an eye. I am Rochford of Bosworth Hedge.' "'Get thee to thy wench for a Rochford,' Culpepper snarled over his shoulder. "'I will have no man speak with my cause. 
You struck a good blow at Bosworth Hedge, but I go to Paris to cut a better throat than thine ever was, Rochford or no Rochford." The old man surveyed him sturdily from his head to his heels, and winked once more at Catherine. "'I would I had had such manners as a stripling,' he uttered in a round and friendly voice. "'I might have prospered better in love.' Going sturdily along the corridor, he picked up Culpepper's sword and set it against the wall. Culpepper, leaning against the doorpost, was gazing with ferocious solemnity at the open clothes-press in which some hanging dresses appeared like women standing. He smoothed his red beard, and thrust his cap far back on his thatch of yellow hair. "'Mark you,' he addressed the clothes-press harshly. "'That is Rochford of Bosworth Hedge. At the end of the day they found him with seventeen body-wounds and the corpses of seventeen Scotsmen round him. He is famous throughout Christendom. Yet in me you see a greater than he. I am sent to cut such a throat. But that's a secret. Only I am a made man." Catherine had closed her door. She knew it would take her twenty minutes to get him into the frame of mind that he would go peaceably away. "'Thou art very pleasant to-night,' she said. "'I have seldom seen thee so pleasant.' "'For the joy of seeing thee, Cat, I have not seen thee this six days.' He made a hideous grinding sound with his teeth. "'But I have broken some heads that kept me from thee.' "'Be calm,' Catherine answered. "'Thou seest me now.' He passed his hand over his eyes. "'I'll be calm to pleasure thee,' he muttered apologetically. "'You said I was very pleasant, Cat.' He puffed out his chest and strutted to the middle of the room. "'Behold, a maid man! I could tell you such secrets. I am sent to slay a traitor at Rome, at Ravenna, at Ratisbon, wherever I find him. But he's in Paris, I'll tell thee that.' Catherine's knees trembled. She sank down into her tall chair. "'Whom shalt thou slay?' "'Aye, and that's a secret. It's all secrets. I have sworn upon the hilt of my knife. But I am bidden to go by an old young man, a make of no man at all, with lips that minced and mowed. It was he bade the guards pass me to thee this night. "'I would know whom thou shalt slay,' she asked harshly. "'Nay, I tell no secrets. My soul would burn. But I am sent to slay this traitor, a great enemy to the King's Highness from the Bishop of Rome. Thus I shall slay him as he comes from a mass.' He squatted about the room, stabbing at shadows. "'It is a man with a red hat,' he grunted. "'Filthy for an Englishman to wear a red hat these days.' "'Put up your knife,' Catherine cried. "'I have seen too much of it.' "'Aye, I am a good man,' he boasted. "'But when I come back you shall see me such a great one. There shall be patents for farms given me. There shall be gold. There shall never be another such as I. I will give thee gowns, Cat.' She sat still but smoothed back a lock of her fair hair that glowed in the firelight. "'When I am a great man,' he babbled on, "'I will not wed thee. For who art thou to wed with a great man? Thou art more cheaply one.' "'But I will give thee—' "'Thou fool!' she shrieked suddenly at him. "'These men shall slay thee. Get thee to Paris to murder as thou wilt. Thou shalt never come back, and I shall be well rid of thee.' He gave her a snarling laugh. "'Toy thou with no man when I am gone!' he said with sudden ferocity, so that his blue eyes appeared to start from his head. "'Poor fool! Thou shalt never come back,' she answered. He had an air of cunning and triumph. "'I have settled all this with that man that's no man, Veridus. Thou art here as in a cloister amongst the maids of the court. No man shall see thee. Thou shalt speak with none that wears not a petticoat. I have so contracted with that man.' "'I tell thee, 
"'They have contrived this to be rid of thee,' she said. His tone became patronizing. "'Wherefore should they?' he asked. When there came no answer from her, he boasted, "'Ay, thou wouldst not have me go, because thou lovest me too well.' "'Stay here,' she said. "'I will give thee money.' He stood gazing at her with his jaw fallen. "'Thou art a drunkard and a foul tongue,' she said. "'But if thou goest to Paris to murder a cardinal, thou shalt never come out of that town alive. Be sure thou shalt be rendered up to death.' He staggered towards her and caught one of her hands. "'Why, it is but cutting of a man's throat.' he said. I have cut many throats, and have taken no harm. Be not sad. This man is a cardinal, but tis all one. It will make me a great man." She muttered, "'Poor fool!' "'I have sworn to go,' he said. I am to have great farms, and a great man shall watch over thee to keep thee virtuous. They have promised it, or I had not gone." "'Do you believe their promises?' she asked derisively. "'Why, tis a good knave, yon Veridus. He promised or ever I asked it." He was on his knees before her as she sat, with his arms about her waist. "'Shalt not cry, dear dove,' he mumbled. "'Shalt go with me to Paris?' She sighed. "'No, no, bide here,' and passed her hand through his ruffled hair. "'I would slay thee, and thou wert false to me,' he whispered over her hand. "'Get thee with me.' She cried, "'No, no.' again in a stifled voice. He cried urgently, "'Come, come, by all our pacts, by all our secret vows!' She shook her head, sobbing. "'Poor fool! Poor fool! I am very lonely!' He clutched her tightly and whispered in a hoarse voice, "'It were merrier at home now. Thou didst vow, at home now, of a summer's night!' She whispered, "'Peace! Peace!' At home now, in June, thou didst," she said urgently. "'Be still. Wouldst thou woo me again to the grunting of hogs?' "'Aye, would I,' he answered. "'Thou didst.' She moved convulsively in her chair. He grasped her more tightly. "'Thou yield'st I know thee,' he cried triumphantly. He staggered to his feet, still holding her hand. "'Thou shalt come to Paris, shalt be lodged like a princess, shalt see great sights.' She sprang up, tearing herself from him. "'Get thee gone from here,' she shivered. "'I am done with starving with thee. I know thy apple-orchard wooings. Get thee gone from here. It is late. I shall be shamed if a man be seen to leave my room so late.' "'Why, I would not have thee shamed, Cat,' he muttered, her strenuous tone making him docile as a child. "'Get thee gone,' she answered, panting. "'I will not starve.' "'Wilt not come with me?' he asked ruefully. "'Thou didst yield in my arms.' "'I do bid thee begone,' she answered imperiously. "'Get thee gold if thou wouldst have me. I have starved too much with thee.' "'Why, I will go,' he muttered. "'Buss me, for I depart towards Dover to-night, else this springled cardinal will be gone from Paris ere I come.'" End of section 10